Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to John chapter 15. So I've been preaching a series of messages titled Live Love. I took a little break last week and shared with you some prophetic insights that I have, uh, I've had for, uh, for, the last, for this coming year, and you can find that online. Uh, but in the, in the Living Love series, we began with, um, we began with the, what I call Living Love 1. Today's Living Love 3, so let's go over 1 and 2 just briefly. We're, we're on this journey together, what I call a 1 Corinthians 14.1 journey, which says, to pursue love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And so we're in this whole um, pursuing love phase. And this is my end game. This is my ultimate goal. I want you to have a healthy, intimate relationship with God. I want your personal relationship to Him to grow exponentially. Because I think that's what this is all about. Nadine and I were in the car the other day, and we were talking about what constitutes a healthy relationship. We discussed lots of things, and it seemed to me that all the different um, concepts we came up with fell into three categories. If you want a healthy relationship with somebody, if you want to have an intimate relationship with someone, well, there has to be love in that relationship. There has to be trust in that relationship, and there has to be healthy communication. Now, you could probably fit most things under those three categories. There might be other things that you could add to the list, but if you want to have a truly healthy, intimate relationship, you need love, trust, and, and good communication. And what I've discovered is most Christians would say they love God. Some Christians, would, if they're honest, would say, only some of them would say that they trust God. It's still a question for them. Very few people would say that they have healthy communication with God. At best, it feels like it's one way. I talk to him, and he never responds. It's kind of like how a lot of you ladies feel, right? <laughs> talk to my husband, he has nothing to say to me. So the journey that we're on, and the reason why I want to emphasize spiritual gifts, especially prophecies, it says in 1 Corinthians 14, is help you increase the ability to communicate with God, where you speak to him and he speaks to you. I think that will enhance your relationship. It will lead you to places of intimacy with him. I think it's required if we want to be intimate with God. So that's the goal. That's the end game. That's why we're doing this, so that ultimately you'll find yourself in a place where your relationship with God it's healthy. Now, this is what I believe. I think all of you hear from God. I think he's speaking to all of you all the time. This is sometimes we don't realize it's him. We've, we've excused it away, or we've ignored it, or we think it's something else. My hope is, you know, later on in the year, I'm going to preach a series on what I'm calling divine communication, where it will help you to recognize the ways that God speaks to you. So that's what it's all about. I'm not looking to raise up an army of people who could do wubba, wubba, wubba stuff, you know? That's, you know. I'm not looking to raise up a bunch of people who can impress one another with the spiritual gifts they had. I mean, if you have gifts and use them effectively, I think that's awesome. But that should be secondary. Primary needs to be this, that you have a healthy relationship with a father who's rich in mercy and who loves you lavishly and extravagantly. So that's the journey that we're on. And we're taking steps to get there. So we're in the pursue love phase. We've already looked at the Father's love for us. I spent about two months on that. 
And now we're in the, we, we've switched from the, uh, from the vertical to the horizontal. We're looking at our love for one another. And so in the first week, we looked at what I think is the greatest obstacle that we face in our ability to love one another. And it's this. It's our need to be right. We break relationships over the fact that I think I'm right, and more so I think you're wrong, and we can't agree. And so what I told you, and I think this is true, is that it's more important to love than it is to be right. If you get to a point where you've got to choose between your rightness and the love in the relationship, you're making a really poor choice if you hold on to your rightness and sacrifice love. It's just a bad deal. If being right comes at the expense of love, the price is too high. How do I know that? Because I'm a stupid man, and I've made that stupid choice so many times. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm hoping that the older I get, the wiser I get. I realize, you know, the things that I went to war over when I was younger, I wouldn't go to war with those things anymore. <laughs> the theological issues that I use as a weapon against other people or I use as an excuse to break relationship, so foolish. Oh, that I'd still have the friendship instead of that I stand in my rightness. It's more important to love than it is to be right. How, just think for yourself, boy, I got a list. How many relationships are broken over that one issue? And so to that end, we watched a pretty entertaining video by Catherine Schultz on being wrong. And she challenged us with this. She says, you know what it feels like to be wrong? feels like you're being right. That's what it feels like. It's not until some point later on you discover I was wrong. It's, that's why it's more important to love than be right, because guess what? You could be wrong. So now you've sacrificed this love relationship with a friend or a family member, a neighbor, and you discover later on, oh, man, I wasn't even right on that. So I think if we want to be a people who live love, let's sacrifice our rightness and embrace it, loving one another. The, the longer I'm a pastor, I'm believing that my job is less, to be, is, is less being a behavior modifier and more being a matchmaker. I no longer believe that it's my job to change you or to fix you or to correct you. That's God's job. I can't change anybody. I can't fix anybody. <laughs> I might be able to give you some wise counsel if you want it, but I think this is more my job. I'm supposed to be a matchmaker. I'm going to help you fall in love with God because he is vastly more capable than I will ever be to make the changes in you that he says needs to be changed. In the way he says it needs to be changed and on the timetable, he says it needs to be changed. In the meantime, my job is to love you. And if you ask for my help to give whatever I got. So in week two, we looked at, uh, we looked at the question, what, is, what does it mean to live love and how do we do it? And so we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, that classic chapter on love. And I told you the first three verses told us what's not required to live love. And that's spiritual gifts. Matter of fact, he makes it pretty clear in that text that you could, you could prophesy, you can have all kinds of spiritual knowledge and still not love. And it means, and you're nothing, nothing but a, Resounding gong or clanging cymbal. We're nothing without love. So though I want spiritual gifts, I want love more. I want love first. I think love creates the environment where the spiritual gifts are used the best. 
Verses 4 to 8 give us examples of love, of living love. It's an, he gives us a list of the ways that God loves us. Not a list of rules and regulations and how we should treat one another, but this is how God loves us. And as he loves us, we can love one another. And then we look at how. And I told you that the key to being able to be people who live love is that we have to live loved. We have to be loved by the Father. We can't draw from an empty will. I can't give you what I don't have. But if I've been loved by the Father, when, when I'm in a relationship with Him where I'm safe and secure in the knowledge of His extravagant and lavish love for me, boy, it makes, it's easier for me to be a husband. It's easier for me to be a father. It's easier for me to be a pastor. It's easier to love people. 1 John 4.19 says it well. It says, we love because He first loved us. If he didn't first love us, we can't love. If we're not first experiencing his love for us, I have nothing to give you. So that, how do we live love with one another? First we live loved. We live in the security of the knowledge of his great love for us. I told you that we experience God's love by going where the life is. If you find what has life on it, you'll find that God's there. So maybe it's worship or it's prayer. Maybe it's study. Maybe it's service. I don't know. It's different things at different seasons. But go where there's life. And you'll find him there and his life will fill you. And it will enable you to love other people. And then I told you after that, start with the people who are easy to love. Maybe this whole live and love thing's brand new to you. Well, don't start with the hardest people. Start with the easiest people. The people you like. The people that are easy to love. Start with them. Gain some momentum. And after you got a little, a little mojo going... A little momentum behind you. Then go find the tougher people. We know who they are, right? We know who the hard people are to love. Then try loving them and start little by little. See how things change. So today I want to look at a familiar passage and apply it to our loving one another. So this is Live Love 3. We're going to look at John chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. Now, I think those verses will go up there. You can follow along as I read. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, I remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit, fruit that will last. And the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. So Lord, I thank you for your word and for the truth that's in your word and the power that's in your word. I pray that your word would have its full impact, its full effect on us, and that it would change us. Amen? So what's the context of this? this is, these are familiar passages. Most of you are, have read this in the past or you're familiar with it in some way or another. You know, There are bumper stickers that talk about the vine and the branches. These verses in John 15 are always in those little boxes that you get, that all those scripture verses in it. Anybody ever seen the Chinese fortune cookies with scripture verses in them? Yeah, I thought they were cheesy too. I didn't buy them. <laughs> I got rid of my Pinterest page, but I had one, one of the boards I had on Pinterest was called Jesus Junk. Every time I'd find something I'd like, I'd be like, seriously, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're really selling this and putting a Jesus sticker on it. Oh my goodness, anyway. I won't go there. Anyway, the, the context of this verse, this is, this is a very famous text. This is very popular, familiar. I'm sure you've heard lots of sermons on it over the years. I want to take a little different look at it. But just for some of the context, this is part of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. It, con- it covers John chapter 13 to chapter 17. <clears throat> this is Jesus' last meeting with his closest friends before his crucifixion. At this point, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's given them a new command to love. He's about to establish a new covenant with them as he breaks bread with them at this Passover meal. And so it's in this context that he speaks of vine and branches. Now, I believe that last words are lasting words. If you have last words with someone who's going to either go away for a long time or pass away, you're going to choose carefully the words you have to say. You're not going to talk about insignificant things. You're going to talk about the things that are most dear on your heart. You know? I can remember dropping my son off at college. You know, we had about a three-hour drive. And on that drive, we didn't talk about superficial things. I want, there were things I wanted him to know. This was a rite of passage in his life. And there were things as a father I wanted to speak into my son's life. We had a great conversation that day. Before we moved away from Washington, where my daughter was going to stay, we were going to move away from our children for the first time. Those last words I had with my daughter before we got in the car, there were tears, and they were tender. They were heartfelt. They weren't superficial. I didn't remind her to change the oil in her car. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was that she, I wanted her to know that she was the apple of my eye. And I love her with everything I got. Right, so last words are lasting words. Jesus is sharing what's most important to him with those who are most important to him. So this whole vine and branches thing, it must be pretty significant. Now there's lots of ways that you can look at these verses, and, and they've been looked at from Bible teachers over the years, many different ways. I, I want to take a, a unique look at them, or at least another look at them today. I think there are two ways that we can look at these verses. We can look at them as process, or we can look at them as production. And I think it's significant what lens we view it through. Do we look at it through a lens of process or a lens of production? Through most of my Christian experience, maybe yours too, 
These have been preached on and read through lenses that have focused on production. It's all about how much fruit you produce. Maybe that's been your, your experience as well. It's a matter of perspective, and I think perspective often reveals what philosophical paradigm we're coming through, coming from. So, if it's a production focus that we look at these verses in John 15, we get especially fixated on verse 2. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it'll be even more fruitful. I don't know. I don't get any warm fuzzies out of that, do you? I mean, those are kind of scary verses. So what happens when you read verse 2? Well, my first thought is, is there fruit on my branch? You know, I become a fruit inspector. Is there fruit? Is it good fruit? How much fruit is there? You know, I'm concerned and I'm afraid that if I'm unfruitful, I'll be rejected by God and thrown into hell. So what does that mean? Well, I've got to work harder. I've got to be more disciplined. I've got to be more obedient. I've got to be more faithful. More meetings, more meetings, more meetings, more meetings. Guilt, shame, guilt, shame. Anybody else ever been on that? You know, I've gone around and around on that. I'm done with going around that mountain. Or worse yet, I start inspecting other people's fruit. How much fruit is on their mind? You know? And if they don't pass my inspection, then it means they have to work harder. They have to be more disciplined. They have to be more fruitful. Yada, yada, yada. I don't know, guys, it's just not working for me. I think this is a weak understanding of the text. I think it completely misses Jesus' heart. And the context is what he's sharing with his closest friends. And worse yet, it distorts our view of God. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's just fear-driven and control-based. And it just can't be the case. And when I look at the whole counsel of Scripture, if I look at these verses that way, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the context of the remaining verses. So listen to me. Don't stop at verse 2. <laughs> Don't get trapped in verse 2. You'll never live free if you stop at verse 2. You'll never live love if you stop at verse 2. But what if it's not production focused? What if what this verse is, is saying is that it's more process focused? Relationship is a process. A relationship with God, as it is with some people in our lives, it's a lifelong process. So listen to these verses, these other verses in the text between 1 to 17, and just think for yourself, does this sound like process? Or does this sound like production? Verse 3, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That was his work. Not our work. Verse 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Does that sound like process or production? I have more to say about, those, about the word remain in a few minutes. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Does that sound like production focused or relationally process focused. Verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You know what? There's very little joy in a Christian walk that's all production based. 
There's a lot of control, there's a lot of fear, but very little joy. And Jesus is saying, hey, I told you this so that my joy may be in you. So if, the, if you read this, and it gets filtered through, the, through your heart, through your brain, through your experience, and, it's, and the result isn't joy, then we're missing something. We've got to read it a different way. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Does that sound like process or production? Verse 15, I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father I've made known to you. Now, if it was production-based, then what you want is slaves. What you want is servants. Produce, 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 produce. Make bricks without straw. Right? He's saying, I call you friends. That sounds like a relational process to me. I think it's all relational. It's process, not production. Consider the fruit of the Spirit. You're familiar with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there no law. Known as the fruit of the Spirit. So whose fruit is this? Whose fruit is it? Think about it. Whose fruit? It's the Spirit's fruit, right? It's not your fruit. Now look, I grew up in Brooklyn. I know nothing about agriculture or farming. But, you know, I've seen grapevines. I've walked past apple trees. In my whole life, I never heard a grapevine groaning. And pop out some grapes. I never heard it working hard. Neither for an apple tree. It's the Spirit's fruit. He produces the fruit in us. You know, even that pruning part is for our good. I met with Rose the other day, and we were talking about this. Reminding me of a story of a friend of mine back in Washington. He was a vinter, and he bought some grapevines that had really been untended for about two years, and he said, do you want to come out and see? I was like, well, you know, I think that'd be pretty cool. And maybe it'll change my view of John 15 if I look at the vine and the branches. He was going to show me how he would prune them. So we go out there, and there are these vines that have just gone everywhere, reaching out in all different directions. I think, oh, how cool this is. It's, it's grown a lot. And he comes over with his shears. He says, yeah, you want to cut here? Boom, boom, boom. Man, he cuts this down to what I think is nothing. It's like all this other stuff that had grown. I said, John, what did you do? He said, I pruned the vine. I said, well, why did you do it that way? He said, because it, he said, Tom, it'll be more fruitful this way. He said, the grapes will be better. They'll be fuller. They'll be be larger than if we had all of this other stuff. I'm thinking, man, I got so much other stuff in my life. You got other stuff in your life? I think there are times when the father comes along, the father that scripture says is rich in mercy. The Father, that scripture says, loves us with a great love and he loves us lavishly. The pruning she is in his hands. And just like my friend John, who was a master vinter and knew exactly how to prune these vines for the best purpose of fruitfulness, the Father does that in our life every so often. I'm so glad Jesus says that he's the gardener. It's not like he comes in there with with a chainsaw and is hacking us down to a nub. He prunes wisely. And it's for our good. So, just staying with John 15, the word remain, maybe your translations use the word abide, but in those 17 verses, the word remain is used 
11 times. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I had that word repeated so many times, I thought it would be good to take a look at you know, what this important word means. It's, it's a Greek word um, spelled M-E-N-O, men-O, and it means to abide, or to be held, or to wait. Some translations, like the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version of the Bible, will use the word abide. Now, the word abide basically means this. It's the opposite of camping. Any of you guys ever go camping? Some of you guys have, right? Nadine doesn't like camping. She says roughing it for her is when the hotel doesn't have room service. That's roughing it for her. I married a city girl, right? What do you do when you go camping? You're setting up a temporary dwelling, right? Maybe you'll be there overnight, maybe a few days, maybe a week or two. You're not going to live there forever. It's temporary. So you set up a temporary dwelling. Well, that's just the opposite of what Jesus is saying when he says, remain in me or abide in me. When you abide, you come and excavate the land. You pour a solid foundation. You build walls on this house, right? You put windows in. You put a roof on this house. You move all your stuff in. It's a permanent dwelling. When he says abide, he's not saying come visit me for a little while. He's saying let's live together. Let's dwell together. I'm going to come and move into your heart and we'll be one. Abide in me. Live permanently, not, to, not with a temporary mindset, with a permanent mindset. Be permanently connected to me. Remain in me. And you'll bear much fruit. It's a very relational word. So remaining in the vine, us as a branch, remaining in Jesus, the vine, <laughs> can almost fall this chair. Us as branches, remaining in him as a vine, it's all about relationship. That's what was most important to Jesus on this last night with his closest friends. He's telling them in metaphoric language, stay intimately connected to God. The secret to fruitfulness is to stay connected to God, to stay connected to love. Because intimate relationships, listen to me, intimate relationships, relationships give birth to fruit. It's true in the natural, and it's true in the spiritual. So if we want to be a community that lives love, that loves one another, one of the key elements to us practically, realistically being able to do this is that we stay connected to love, that we stay connected to God. To live love, you need to be loved. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. You need to experience his love for yourself. You, because you will love others the way you've been loved. You can only give what you've got. I'm thinking about that joy part again. With that in mind, listen to some verses from Romans chapter 8. Paul says, What then shall we say in response to all uh, to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies who is it that condemns? Christ, Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship 
persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or the sword, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long, and we're considered as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, verse 38, that neither height nor depth, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future or any power, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation <coughs> excuse me, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, it's a powerful picture. I can have joy about that. Nothing. No power in the universe. Nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love that he has for us. Do you feel or hear any control or fear in those verses? I don't. I think it's just describing a God who's incredibly powerful and who loves us with all he's got. I want to remain in a, in a relationship like that. I'll have joy about that kind of relationship. I'm not afraid of a God like that. I need to be in a relationship like that. How about you? Just a couple more points and we'll finish. If John 15 were all about production instead of process, if that were the case, then why did Jesus say these words in Matthew 7? He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't know, this is perplexing. Prophesying, driving out demons, performing miracles. That all sounds like some pretty productive stuff in most churches. <laughs> sounds like fruit. Some of us would mock that up in the fruit column. But Jesus makes it clear in this text that the issue is knowing him. That word knowing is a, it's a Greek word, konosko. It's a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. It's speaking about a deep, personal, intimate relationship. Yeah, you could do all this stuff, but I don't know who you are. I, don't think, I think doing that stuff is good. It's important. I want to be able to do that stuff. Not at the expense of knowing him. Not in, as a replacement of knowing him. But as the fruit of knowing him. That's how I want to do that stuff. I think that's what Jesus' point is. I never knew you. We never conosco. We never had that intimate re relationship, that intimate friendship. That's what it's about. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 says that you can prophesy and know all mysteries and have knowledge and perform miracles and have not love. It says you're nothing. You see that? I'm very concerned that a distorted version of Christianity has affected our Western church culture. It's performance-based. It's production-based. It's not process or relationship. It focuses more on fruit than on remaining, and more on works than knowing God, and more on performance than relationship. It can be controlling and manipulative. It can be heavy-laden with shame and guilt, overflowing with the rules and regulations of men, grossly lacking in both freedom and love. And you know what? <laughs> if we take an honest look, it's just not producing fruit. All those efforts. 
I remember years ago being at someone, a, a pastor friend of mine's church. We were in the same town, and he was having a he was having some event that I agreed to attend. And there was a gal up there leading worship, and she was pretty talented. She had a really strong voice and played guitar well. But she only knew one strum. Man, I don't care what song she was doing. Every song had this same really fast strum. So I'm a musician. I've led worship for a long time. After about the third song with that same strum, I'm getting really aggravated. You know? Have you ever had a situation where you get to sit in audience of yourself? You're watching something going on, and you're feeling these feelings, and you can observe yourself in the process. You ever had that happen? That's what I'm kind of doing here. I'm watching this, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to diagnose myself. Okay, Tom, why, why are you so aggravated? And I realized, you know, what if it was one of the worship leaders from my church? Would I feel differently? And I had to honestly say, I would feel differently. So what was the difference? I knew the worship leader from my church. I didn't know the worship leader from his church. So just that same week, one of the women in our church was leading worship, and I knew that her life had been a disaster. They had gone through some horrific experiences. And the fact that she could stand up there at all with a guitar in her hand and sing before people was just an overwhelming achievement and grand success. But I could only appreciate that because I knew her. I didn't know the other lady. So I couldn't see her as somebody who was in process. I could just judge the production. And I decided it didn't meet my standard. And it really convicted me that day. It taught me a lesson about this whole process or production thing. What am I looking at? Galatians 5, 1, one of my favorite verses says that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. The most loving act in history is also the most liberating. It's the cross. He offers us freedom from the law, from religious laws, from, uh, from the rules and regulations of men. No, the law never was able to set us free from sin. All the law ever did was reveal that there was sin. Right? If you drive to an intersection that has no traffic light, you can't get a ticket. If there's a traffic light and it's red and you drive through it, you can get a ticket. Right? That's all the law does. It shows you what you did wrong. It doesn't set you free from it. I, um, I pastored a church once, and we were there only a few weeks. And this church was into using flags and banners. You guys have ever seen that in church services? And so, um, I, don't know, I don't know if we were there a month yet. And during worship one Sunday morning, one of, the, one of the boys, probably like seven or eight years old, gets up and grabs a banner, and he's swinging it back and forth. I thought, how cute. He's an adorable little kid. Now... There were a few people had to duck, you know. Because of, of course he picked the banner that had the longest possible stick on it. But I don't know, I didn't think it was a big deal. And so later that week, two of the elders show up, and they're pretty upset. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, well, you know, so-and-so 
was swinging that banner around on Sunday. I said, yeah, wasn't he adorable? And they looked at me and they're like, mm, they didn't think he was so adorable. I said, you have to make an announcement and let people know that the kids are not allowed to do this. And they really wanted me to establish a rule. So I listened to them for a while. And, um, and then they raised some, some other issues <laughs> that were of a, a weightier nature. How much of this story should I tell? <laughs> Maybe he's saying less. Well, there, there have been people, just, just to, I want to you know, be honest here, there were, there were people in our church who had been told that there were other people in town that they were not allowed to be friends with. And this was the rule that the pastor had set up, the former pastor. I'm thinking, dang, man, I don't ever have that much control over people. They were told who they could and couldn't be friends with. And so these same elders at the same meeting, they wanted me to get up on Sunday morning and set this rule, you know, to reinforce this rule about who they could and couldn't be friends with. I said, guys, I, I got a problem with this. You know? I was like, we're all grown-ups. You know, far be it for me to tell people who they can and can't be friends with. I don't want to mess up what was a standard before, but there are things that I, you know, I just can't do. And I said, let me explain why. See, they were all about production. And they had very little heart for process. It was just where they were at at the time. So I gave them this analogy of a stop sign. I said, if I, if I, need, if I make this rule, that means I have to create a stop sign. I have to install the stop sign. I have to monitor the stop sign. I have to enforce the rules of the stop sign. And I have to punish those who violate the stop sign. I said, man, that's a whole lot of work. <laughs> I don't want to do any of those things. Now all the responsibility is on me to police this thing. I said, what if we do this instead? What if I take these people and I walk them to this intersection and I tell them, you know what? This is a dangerous intersection. I see a problem here. I recommend that you look both ways before you cross the street. Use wisdom. Be careful. And if you want to cross that street, that's up to you. But just, you know, just please heed my counsel and cross carefully. And... Oh, and by the way, if you choose to go across to the other side and you get hit by a truck in the process, come back and see me. And I promise that I will love on you until you're better. Right? I'm not going to be angry with you because you, know, you didn't cross the street well. And so the difference is, is now they're responsible for their spiritual journey. They get to use their ability to perceive and hear God and do what they think is best. Even if they make mistakes, that's okay. They grow up, and I don't have to do all that work. They're responsible, not me. They're free, even free to make mistakes. And they know that they'll be loved by me either way. Whether or not they choose to cross that street and be friends with the, you know, the, the people that had been shunned as outcast, or whether they pick up banners and accidentally smack somebody in the head with it, you know? That's freedom. It's not performance-based. It's relational. Can you see how that's relational? It's, it's a practical way to live love, to give people space to make mistakes. I think that's exactly what God does with us. 
He lets us cross the street, even hit button truck. And he's there for us when we need to be loved on afterwards. That's what I want us to do with each other. Why is this important? Because I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, for us to be a people who live love without freedom. I think being free is an essential part of living love. I think it's why Jesus was telling them, abide in the vine. This is where the life will be for you. But it's obvious by his statements that they could choose not to abide in the vine. Does that make sense? It's almost impossible to live love without freedom. Think about it. It's hard to give someone a hug if you're in bondage. One, one last point about John 15, and then we'll close in prayer. One last practical application. Process of production. It's hard to live love when you're preoccupied with how fruitful your life is. <coughs> it's hard to live love when your focus is on what you're producing. It's even more difficult to live love if you're preoccupied with how much fruit someone else's life is producing. I don't think we were create, called or created to be fruit inspectors. I think that's his job. I don't think we were called or created to prune. That's the Father's job. The pruning shears are in his hands. I think love is other-focused. It's easy to love people if you see them as being in process. It's the whole worship leader thing. The worship leader at my church, I knew the process that she was in. And because my heart was for her in her process, I didn't care at all about the production. If I had that same heart for my friend's worship leader, then I wouldn't have been so agitated by her constant strumming only one way. <laughs> it's easier to love people if we see them as being in process. As Christians, I don't think we can make someone else fruitful, but maybe your love for them, for them, will increase their desire to be grafted into the vine too. So remember, a practical way to live love is to see people as being in process as opposed to judging their fruitfulness. Like I said earlier, I no longer see my job as to change people. I just want to help them fall in love with God. Could there be a better way to live love? So let's pray. So what does God look like to you? Is he a loving father? Or is he the wild-eyed, crazed gardener eager to hack you off with massive pruning shears? Hopefully you can see him today differently. I think your perspective will have a profound impact on how you live loved and, and how you live love. So Father, help us. I don't know what happens. It's easy to not be connected to the vine, to not abide or remain in the vine. I know it. It's easy to get disconnected. Would you help us with that? Holy Spirit, have your way. Do the things that only you can do to help each of the branches represented here stay connected to the vine. And then I ask, Lord, that you would do just how you created things to operate. Let your life flow through the vine, through each of us as branches, and let your fruit 
be full and abundant. Let it be amazing for you. And to that end, Lord, help us to love one another. Give us the grace we need to see our friends, especially the ones at hard times, as being in process. And help us to stop judging how fruitful their lives are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. If anybody needs prayer, come on up. I'll be happy to pray for you. Um, otherwise, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you.